Amen. This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 27. And as you make your way to the 27th chapter of Job, well, I want to take a moment to remind you that we actually find ourselves in the middle of Job's final defense. I'll remind you, it was back in the beginning of this book. That's when we learned about the day when the Lord allowed an adversarial angel known as Satan to attack the family and the flocks and the flesh of his servant, Job. Well, after losing his children, after losing his livestock, after suffering you know, a health setback, Job found himself surrounded by three friends who came to take their turns, falsely accusing him of living in sin. They had come to the conclusion that he was living in sin because this, uh, in their minds, was the punishment of the Lord being poured out on Job. And so they jumped to the conclusion that they needed to go and rebuke Job so that he might repent and return to the Lord. And so over the past seven months, we've considered the content of this conversation that's unfolded between these four men. And we've considered how each man presented their case for why Job needed to repent and return to the Lord. And not only that, but we've also taken the time to contemplate the way that Job defended the integrity of his faith. And as we've seen throughout our study of this book so far, Job addressed the accusations of his friends one by one. And then in our study last week, well, that's when we found Job presenting the introduction for his final defense. And while he began by first acknowledging the sovereignty of our creator and, and, and he exalted the Lord and his power over all of creation, we now find Job shifting gears. He's, he's moving from the exaltation of the Almighty to the mental misconception that caused him to be confused about the, the real situation that he found himself in the middle of. I'll remind you, Job truly believed that the Lord was the one who was actively afflicting his soul with all of this suffering. He truly believed that the Lord was the one who was afflicting him with adversity. And so it's important for us to remember that you know, Job uh, was, was the man who was quick to insist you know, that, that God is punishing him and without cause. But then, but then I should also remind you that he also uh, encouraged his wife that they ought to embrace the Lord's blessings in the same way that they, uh, you know, that they should accept the adversity that the Lord brought on to them just as they accepted the, the blessings that, that he poured out on them. So, so Job here, he, he, he summed it up best, I believe, in his response to Zophar, the Naamathite, and that's when he declared this. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though, though he seems to be the one bringing on all this adversity, I'm still going to trust him in the same way that I trusted him when he poured out his blessings on, on the house of Job. Without debate, Job was a man of incredible faith who was ready to trust in the Lord regardless of the circumstances. And yet at the same time, I want to remind you that Job also believed that his suffering was undeserved because he was a blameless man who deserved the blessings of the Lord and not the adversity. And so he kind of finds himself in this conundrum as he's trying to you know, accept the adversity while also seeing himself as a righteous man who didn't deserve it. And as a matter of fact, it's here in our text tonight where we find Job. He's continuing to defend his own integrity. And in order to make his case... 
you know, he compares his life to those who were walking in wickedness. We'll see him tonight comparing his life to those who were walking in wickedness. And so Job defended his own innocence by comparing himself to those who were truly living in sin. And he's effectively saying, hey, there's really people out there who are wicked, who deserve the punishment of the Lord. I'm not one of those people. And so as we take a closer look at his argument, it's important for us to realize that the standard of sinless perfection should not be measured by the number of sins committed by those who are worse than us. If you're going to make an argument for your own perfection, don't use a standard of how bad the other people around you are. No, instead, we have to measure our perceived perfection with a perfect standard. And of course, we know that's Jesus Christ. Well, with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of this incredible book by turning our attention now to Job chapter 27. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here we read, moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, As long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Here in the beginning of this chapter here, we find Job. He's, again, shifting his attention from the sovereign authority of our creator to the bitter feelings that he was still harboring as he considered the circumstances of his suffering. And just to be clear about his perspective We must not fail to grasp what Job was actually saying here. And so let's back up. Let's take another look at verse 2. Here Job again declares, as God lives, who has taken away my justice and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. Now, uh, as we take a closer look at this verse here, uh, we can clearly see here that, that Job was completely convinced that the Lord was the one who had taken away his justice. Or in other words, the Lord was the one who had de- denied him his right for a fair trial. Yeah, yeah. so he's, he's in the middle of this pain and, and in, in the middle of this suffering, and he's cried out several times to stand before the Lord so that he can plead his case. And the Lord has denied this. And, and so he's saying, hey, the Lord has taken away my justice. Now, how would Job know what justice is apart from the Lord? How would anybody know what justice is apart from the perfect standard of the the one who created justice? And so this accusation is is a a bit silly, you know, in the sense that he's claiming that the one who created justice is somehow being unjust. Job incorrectly came to the conclusion that that the Lord was somehow unjustly punishing him, and it's for this reason that he accused the Lord of turning him into a bitter man. He says there in the second half of the verse, the Almighty has made my soul bitter. Then after falsely accusing God of being the one who was unjustly punishing him, Job goes on here to assure his friends that he would never say anything that could be considered unjust or deceitful. Notice again in verse 3, there again he declares, as long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, My lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Now, this word wickedness found there in the middle of verse 4. It's translated from a Hebrew word which speaks of injustice. He's saying, hey, my lips, God's given me the breath 
in my lungs. And I would never use the breath that God has given me to say anything that would be wicked or unjust. That word deceit, which is found there at the end of verse 4, it speaks of, uh, of guile uh, and, and deception. So, so he's saying, hey, I, I would never say anything unjust, and I would never say anything deceptive. And I like the way that the scholars who created the, ba- the Bible in basic English, they render verses 3 and 4 in this way. For all my breath is still in me, and the Spirit of God is in my life. Truly, there is no deceit in my lips, and my tongue does not say what is false. Now listen, I have no doubt that Job was a man who sincerely believed what he was saying was true. You know, I think that he really, in his mind and in his heart, truly believes that he's speaking the truth. And yet, as sincere as he was, he was sincerely wrong. And the proof of my point is found in the fact that he just said something that was both unjust and deceitful. God was not the one punishing him. And I want to remind you, it was back in verse 2, he accused the Lord of unjustly punishing him with all of the pain and the suffering that he was enduring. And knowing that Job was not being punished by God, but rather the Lord was allowing his faith to be tested, well, what this means then is that Job was in fact guilty of presenting his friends with an unjust accusation against the Lord. Therefore, it was deceitful. Though he wasn't intentionally deceiving his friends, it was still deceitful. That being the case, you know, his self-defense, well, it wasn't as rock solid as he believed it to be. Now, I want to remind you that Job was initially introduced in the beginning of this book as being a blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. Some use that to insist that Job was a sinless man And yet we can be certain that that is not the case at all. To prove my point, I want to remind you that every person is born under the curse of original sin. Everyone, you know, that has been, you know, born naturally here in this world, everyone who is a descendant naturally of Adam and Eve has been born under the curse. We've been born with the stain of original sin. And listen, not only is every person born under the curse of original sin, except the Lord Jesus Christ, who was supernaturally created within the womb of Mary, you know, apart from Jesus Christ, we've all been born with the curse of original sin. And not only that, but we're also sinners because we've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. So we're not only born with the stain of sin, but then we've gone on to sin and, and engage in acts of unrighteousness ourselves. And this is precisely the point that Paul was making in Romans chapter 3. It's verse 23 where he declares this. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. And so we're not only born dead in sins and trespasses, born spiritually dead, but we're also guilty of sinning by missing the mark of our creator's perfect will. Thankfully, uh, the born-again believer has been cleansed from the stain of this sin. And, and so it's by the blood of Jesus Christ that the stain of our sin is cleansed. But at the same time, listen, Christians still struggle with the sinful desires of our fallen flesh. We still have a sin nature that we will continue to have until uh, the time of our resurrection. And, and that's why we're supposed to walk in the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And yet Christians can still walk in the flesh and engage in sin. 
Now, some Christians would insist that that's not the case at all, and yet I would remind you of something the Apostle John said. It's 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. There he says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you say you have no sin, you just sinned because you're a liar. Yeah, we still have sin. And yet there are those in the word faith movement, the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. And the, these guys you know, uh, oftentimes like to talk about how sinless they are and how they no longer sin and these sorts of things. For example, let's consider the claims of one NAR charlatan. His name is Todd White. He recently assured his followers that he hasn't told a lie since his conversion. That's what he said. Here's how he put it, and I quote him. I've honestly, I've been saved for 18 years. I have not lied for 18 years. Next thing you know, his, his pants caught on fire. But uh, no, okay, that, that didn't happen. But that would have been hilarious, wouldn't it? Now, this is, this is an interesting claim, and especially as, you know, I could take you through a lot of Todd White tapes and show you where he's lying about a lot of things, right? But so, listen, as we consider this claim that he's making, that he hasn't lied for 18 years, you know, here's another claim that he's made, that he hasn't looked at a woman with lust since his conversion. So, so since the day of his conversion, he hasn't looked at a woman once with lustful eyes. So I guess that makes... Two lies that we know that Todd White has told since his conversion. Listen, according to John, those who say they have no sin are deceiving themselves. They're they're living in self-deception. And the reason why is because as long as we're in this fallen body, as long as we still have this sinful nature, now now we've been given the power over our sinful nature by by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And yet, how many times a day do we fail to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? How many times a day do we slip back into sin? Knowing that our fallen flesh is still prone to the pursuit of our sinful desires, we do well to become those blameless believers who are always striving to maintain a good conscience towards God and men. This is precisely the point that Paul made as he gave his defense before Governor Felix It's actually found in Acts chapter 24. It's verse 16. There Paul declares this. He says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. From this, we see that Paul isn't claiming to be sinless. He's not saying, I am sinless. He even tells us later that he hasn't arrived and, and that he hasn't already been perfected. But we see here that he was always striving to have a good conscience uh, without offense towards God and and towards men. And in light of of this uh, statement here, we would all do well to follow in the footsteps of Paul. He even said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so we too should be striving to have a good conscience. We should be striving to avoid offense, regardless of whether it's towards God or towards humans. Whether we're talking about sins vertically or sins horizontally between you know, one another, we ought to strive to be blameless before both God and men. And with this as the goal, I want to continue to consider the difference between being blameless and being sinless. This isn't necessarily the same thing. And with that, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 27. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5, here Job declares, Far be it from me that I should say you are right. 
till I die. I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. Wow. Job had a pretty high opinion of himself here. And as he continues to defend his integrity, you know, against the false accusations of his friends, there's a whole lot of me, my, I statements here, you know. Far be it from me that I should say you are right. In other words, you're wrong, I'm right. And until I die, I will not put my integrity away from me. My righteousness, I hold fast to. I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me. And, you know, it's very, 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 very high on himself here. Now again, Job was a blameless man of incredible integrity, no doubt about it. And yet, at the same time, he wasn't as righteous as he was claiming to be here in these verses. And to make my case, it'll help you to know that the word righteousness, which is found there in verse 6, it's actually translated from a Hebrew word which was used of that which is ethically and judicially correct. The same word also speaks of that which is right all of the time. Righteousness is that which is right all of the time. And as we've already seen, Job was not right all of the time. He wasn't. As a matter of fact, he was wrong when he insisted that God was unjustly punishing him when, in fact, the Lord had just allowed him to be tested uh, in in the integrity of his faith. And, And from this, we can see then that Job was a blameless man. I mean, that's what we're told in the beginning of the book. He was a blameless man, despite the fact that he was not completely righteous, you know, uh, in, a, in a practical sense. In, in a practical sense, he was not righteous. And with that, I'll, just, I'll, I'll remind you that those who trust in the Lord, we are positionally righteous in the fact that we've received the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, but we're still not yet practically righteous in the sense that we still, you know, sin and, and we still make mistakes and we still miss the mark. So Job was a blameless man, but this doesn't mean that he was a completely righteous man, practically speaking. In order to understand the difference, let's consider how Job quickly confessed his, his own unrighteousness, and, and yet this didn't happen until the day when, when God finally showed up and began to interview him. And so hold your place here in this chapter of Job, and let's flip forward to Job chapter 40. You see, it's here in the 40th chapter of Job, This is where we find Job's response. You know, God's already shown up. He's already been presenting Job with several several questions for a few chapters now. And and so, you know, God gives him a little bit of a breather here in Job chapter 40. And and if you would look with me there, uh, Job chapter 40, beginning at verse 1, here we learn that the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer. He's saying, hey, here I am. You want to rebuke me? Go for it. And then Job answers the Lord in verse 3. And in verse 4 says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Here in these verses, we find the Lord challenging Job about the false accusations that he had made against the Almighty. And, but rather than holding fast to his righteousness as he claimed he was going to do, you know, Job confessed very quickly that he was a vile man, which is to say that he was a cursed man who was guilty of contempt. 
He was guilty of contempt. He's standing in the court of the Lord, and he's guilty of contempt against the judge of, of heaven and earth. And after confessing that he was a vile man, he covered his mouth and sat in silence as the Lord continued uh, to present the, the information that we'll, that we'll study in Job uh, uh, towards the end of this book. Now, with all this in mind, uh, we should take a moment to consider how quickly Job's perspective changed. You know, when he was speaking with his friends, you know, the three knuckleheads who were making all the false accusations, you know, Job saw himself as a man of integrity who's defending his righteousness, and he's right before these three guys. And, and, and then he stood in, in the presence of God, and he quickly realized he was a vile man. You know, when he's comparing himself to his three buddies, he's righteous, but then when he compares himself to God and sees himself in, in, the, in the presence of God's holiness, he realizes he's not as right as he once thought. Job was a blameless man when compared to those who are wicked. But he was less than righteous when he compared himself to the righteousness of God. To further explain my point here, let's continue to consider the way that Job then began to compare himself to those who are wicked here in Job chapter 27. So make your way back to Job 27. We're still here in this moment of time before God shows up and he puts his hand over his mouth, right? So he's still thinking that he's, you know, he's, he's, he's a righteous man. Look with me there at verse 7 where he goes on to declare this. He says, may my enemy be like the wicked and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he may gain much if God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? Here in these verses we find Job. He's setting himself apart from his enemies, and he's setting himself apart from those who he considered to be wicked and unrighteous and hypocritical. And while we realize that Job, he will eventually humble himself as he stands in the presence of the Lord, it's here in our text tonight, that's where we find him exalting himself as he compared his walk to the walk of those who were wicked and unrighteous and hypocritical while they live here in this world. Now, don't get me wrong, listen, the world is most certainly filled with wicked, unrighteous hypocrites. And many of them don't seem to have a problem flaunting their fleshly ways and without any sense of shame at all. They've seared their conscience as with a hot iron. There are even those who insist that God has given them the liberty to sin uh, in these sorts of ways, and they continue living for the lusts of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. At the same time, though, listen, there are many believers who, like Job, love to exalt themselves above those who are living in sin in these sorts of ways. And they do this by comparing themselves to the wicked and unrighteous hypocrites that we see in this world. Christian, listen, if we compare ourselves to the worst people on the planet, well, then it's easy for us to start thinking that we've achieved some, some level of self-righteousness. You know, if I, if I compare myself to the Hitlers of the world, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, man, I am righteous. I'm one of the best people to ever live in this world. If you compare me to Hitler. What about if you compare me to Jesus? I'm a horrible scumbag. And, and, and so it's important to understand that, you know, you can stand next to a, a wicked person and feel all self-righteous, but that doesn't mean that you are righteous. 
This reminds me of the parable that Jesus presented in Luke chapter 18. It's verses 10 through 14 where Jesus declares this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now here in this parable, we find Jesus, he's describing the pride of, of this religious ruler who truly believed that he was righteous. And, and the chances are he was you know, doing his best to keep all of the law and giving all of his, you know, uh, his tithes and, and, and doing all the right things. He was showing up to the temple when he was supposed to be there and he was offering the sacrifices he was supposed to offer. And yet his heart was filled with pride. He wasn't just this humble believer who was happy to submit to the Lord. No, he was filled with pride because of how righteous he he thought he was. But we have to understand that his righteousness was based on a comparison to the extortioners and the unjust and the adulterers and, and the tax collector. He, he saw himself as this religious hero you know, it, when, when compared to all of these horrible people. The Pharisee wasn't comparing himself to the one who alone is righteous. The Pharisee wasn't comparing himself to the God who has established the righteous standard. No, he simply compared himself to the unrighteous hypocrites who are all living in sin. And in light of this comparison, it's no wonder that he was quick to celebrate his own self-righteousness. And yet what he failed to realize was that the Lord wasn't impressed with his religious pride at all. The Lord Jesus elaborates on this by encouraging his audience to realize that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those who think that they're righteous because they're not as bad as the tax collector, well, according to Jesus, they're eventually going to be humbled and not unlike Job. Well, with this as the focus, let's continue to consider the way that Job exalted himself here in our text tonight. And if you would look with me there at Job chapter 27, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 11. Here Job declares, I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. And here in these verses, we find Job, he's continuing to defend his righteousness. And he does this by describing the way that our Almighty God will deal with those who will not repent of their own wicked ways. And this includes the eternal inheritance of those who will receive an everlasting portion of pain. That's the inheritance that he's talking about there in verse 13, where he talks about the portion of a wicked man. 
This, of course, is the everlasting inheritance of punishment. And not only that, but there in verse 13, again, he refers to the hellish heritage that our almighty God will provide to those who oppressed the people of God. And so Job is basically saying, hey, you know, know, I'm going to tell you what you already know. We've all seen this, and so quit talking nonsense. But, you know, those who are wicked are going to receive a just punishment from Almighty God. And then Job describes the way in which the wicked will have a negative impact on their offspring as well. Let's consider how he puts it here in Job 27, beginning at verse 17. Here he goes on to declare this. He says, If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth which a watchman makes. The rich man will lie down, but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes, and he is no more. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's describing the way in which the sinful decisions of those who are wicked will end up affecting their families in negative ways. This includes their kids who he says are going to die, in, they're going to be buried in death, which speaks of dying in war, or they're, they're not going to be filled with bread, speaking of famine and starvation. You know, they're going to die for lack of food. And not only that, but those who survive these wars and these famines will die in, in a plague. And, and sadly, you know, this kind of sounds like the situation that we see happening there in the Gaza Strip as the families of those who are connected to Hamas are suffering from the consequences of those evil actions that occurred on October the 7th. It's like you know, there's a bunch of innocent people dying. Why? Well, because they're connected to these leaders there who have attacked Israel. And so, you know, wicked people who will not repent of their wicked ways will negatively impact their families in ways that they weren't expecting. And it's sad. It's tragic. Job also described the way in which their wealth won't save them from certain punishment that the Lord has promised to pour out on those who will not repent of their wickedness. And it's for this reason that the unrepentant are filled with fear as they consider the just judgment, which will eventually be poured out on those who refuse to repent of their wickedness. And I want to consider the way that Job puts it here in the final section of this chapter. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 20. Here, Job goes on to declare, Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its power. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. And here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job. He's describing the fear that fills the hearts of those who are wicked. And while it's true that the wicked are oftentimes quick to insist that they aren't worried about the judgment of God, many will even deny that there there is such a God that exists. And yet this doesn't change the fact that those who, who will not repent of their unrighteousness will eventually find themselves on the receiving end of the Lord's righteous wrath. Listen, you can deny God's existence all the way until the day you die. And then you're, you're in for a rude awakening as you find yourself standing before the great white throne, judgment throne of Jesus Christ. I like the way that the scholars who created the Bible in basic English rendered verses 20 through 23. Here's how they put it. Fears overtake him like rushing waters. In the night, the storm wind takes him away. The east wind takes him up and he is gone. 
he is forced violently out of his place. God sends his arrows against him without mercy. He goes in flight before his hand. Men make signs of joy because of him, driving him from his place with sounds of hissing. From this we can see how the wicked will eventually receive the just punishment that they deserve. And according to Job, those who are you know, there when, when this judgment happens, those who witness the punishment of the wicked, they're going to rejoice. They're going to rejoice as the Lord solves the problem of evil. A lot of people want to know, well, if, if God really is, is loving and, and if God really is powerful and if, and if God really... And, and, then, and they point to the problem of evil. Why doesn't he solve this? Why doesn't he take care of this? Why doesn't he protect us from all of this evil? And, and Job here is saying, there's coming a day. Just because God hasn't dealt with the problem of evil today doesn't mean he won't. You better believe that there is coming a day. He, he's already promised that he is going to deal with the problem of evil at the great white judgment throne of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to Job's perspective regarding those who are wicked, well, there should be no doubt in our minds that there is coming this day when the Lord is going to judge all the unrepentant unbelievers who rejected Jesus Christ, and this judgment is going to be according to the judicial standard of God's righteous wrath. And so, again, he's going to solve the problem of evil, but at the same time, we must not fail to recognize the problem with Job's overall perspective here. It seems to me here that Job had come to believe that he was not only a blameless man, which speaks of those who are striving to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. He, was not, he not only you know, believed that he was a blameless man, but, but that he was also a righteous man, practically speaking, because, well, he wasn't as wicked as the worst people. And it's sad to say that there are many in the church today who are following in these footsteps. They, they seem to have embraced the same misconception. Now, I'm referring to those you know, who think that they're righteous because, well, they're not like the extortioners and they're not like the adulterers and they're not like the tax collectors and you know, I'm not like all these horrible people, so therefore I must be righteous. And not so quick. Just because you're not the worst sinner that you could be doesn't mean that you're righteous. And yet there are many who come to church with a heart that's filled with pride and they, they, they stand in the congregation much like the Pharisee and they're looking down on all the people. Oh, what is she wearing? Oh, what, what's wrong with this guy? You know, what, what kind of, he's not even, he doesn't even have a, a full beard. You know, how can he be a, a righteous man? I know some of you guys can't grow a full beard. Huh? God knows your heart. But seriously, you know, it, this is a religious attitude that many Christians take on because, you know, they, they overcame this sin and they overcame that sin. Next thing you know, they think they're sinless. And, and, and then after placing themselves upon a pedestal that, they, that they, they don't deserve to be on, they start looking down on everybody. Look at all these people struggling with sin. Why can't they be more like me? Be careful with that kind of religious attitude. I encourage you to remember that those who exalt themselves will be humbled without fail God is not interested in your pride and, and run the gamut on whatever it is we're proud about you know whether you're waving the rainbow flag or the Christian flag or the American flag or whatever it is God's not impressed with our pride 
He's calling us to be humble because he is the Almighty and he is righteous and he is sinless and he is perfect and we are not. I want to remind you of the warning that Paul presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's verse 12 where he declared, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Christian, remember, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit comes before a fall. Therefore, if you think you've achieved some sort of state of sinless perfection, I encourage you, stop comparing yourself to sinners. Stop comparing yourself to sinners. Stop thinking that you're righteous because all the people around you are worse. If you really want the the right measurement, the right standard to determine whether you're perfect or not, compare yourself to Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. He's the perfect one. And so see how you measure up to Jesus. I'll remind you that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you want to put your perfection to the test, go study the Gospels. Go learn about the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ and then test your obedience next to the Lord's obedience who always did the will of the Father perfectly. I'm going to guess that our perfection, our so-called righteousness will not compare to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That being the case, we need to humble ourselves in the sight of our Savior as we remember how much we need him to perfect us. This is the point that Paul was making in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's verses 23 and 24 where Paul declares, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. From this we can see that those who truly trust in Jesus Christ will be sanctified completely by the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but Paul also assures us that he will also keep us blameless believers until the day when we finally stand in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing that he who called us is faithful to accomplish this good work, well, let's, let's set aside the pride and realize that he's the one doing the work in us. And in this way, let's humbly walk in the power of the Holy Spirit According to the perfect will of the Lord. Let's pray.